Section 18 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, the Warren Commission Report by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 4, The Assassin, Part 7 Oswald's Arrest The Texas Theater is on the north side of Jefferson Boulevard, approximately eight blocks from the scene of the Tippett shooting, and six blocks from where several witnesses last saw Oswald running west on Jefferson Boulevard. Shortly after the Tippett murder, police sirens sounded along Jefferson Boulevard. One of the persons who heard the sirens was Johnny Calvin Brewer, manager of Hardy's Shoe Store, a few doors east of the Texas Theater. Brewer knew from radio broadcasts that the president had been shot and that a patrolman had also been shot in Oak Cliff. When he heard police sirens, he, quote, looked up and saw the man enter the lobby, end quote, a recessed area extending about 15 feet between the sidewalk and the front door of his store. A police car made a U-turn, and as the sirens grew fainter, the man in the lobby, quote, looked over his shoulder and turned around and walked up West Jefferson towards the theater, end quote. The man wore a T-shirt beneath his outer shirt, and he had no jacket. Brewer said, quote, he just looked funny to me. His hair was sort of messed up and looked like he had been running, and he looked scared, and he looked funny, end quote. Mrs. Julia Postal, selling tickets at the box office of the Texas Theater, heard police sirens, and then saw a man as he, quote, ducked into, end quote, the outer lobby space of the theater near the ticket office. Attracted by the sound of the sirens, Mrs. Postal stepped out of the box office and walked to the curb. Shortly thereafter, Johnny Brewer, who had come from the nearby shoe store, asked Mrs. Postal whether the fellow that had ducked in had bought a ticket. She said, quote, no, by golly, he didn't, end quote, and turned around, but the man was nowhere in sight. Brewer told Mrs. Postal that he had seen the man ducking into his place of business and that he had followed him to the theater. She sent Brewer into the theater to find the man and check the exits, told him about the assassination, and said, quote, I don't know if this is the man they want, but he is running from them for some reason, end quote. She then called the police. At 1.45 p.m., the police radio stated, quote, Have information a suspect just went in the Texas Theater on West Jefferson, end quote. Patrol cars bearing at least 15 officers converged on the Texas Theater. Patrolman M. N. McDonald with Patrolman R. Hawkins, T. A. Hudson, and C. T. Walker entered the theater from the rear. Other policemen entered the front door and searched the balcony. Detective Paul L. Bentley rushed to the balcony and told the projectionist to turn up the house lights. Brewer met McDonald and the other policemen at the alley exit door, stepped out onto the stage with them, and pointed out the man who had come into the theater without paying. The man was Oswald. 
he was sitting alone in the rear of the main floor of the theater, near the right center aisle. About six or seven people were seated on the theater's main floor, and an equal number in the balcony. MacDonald first searched two men in the center of the main floor, about ten rows from the front. He walked out of the row up the right center aisle. When he reached the row where the suspect was sitting, MacDonald stopped abruptly and told the man to get on his feet. Oswald rose from his seat, bringing up both hands. As MacDonald started to search Oswald's waist for a gun, he heard him say, quote, Well, it's all over now. End quote. Oswald then struck MacDonald between the eyes with his left fist. With his right hand, he drew a gun from his waist. MacDonald struck back with his right hand and grabbed the gun with his left hand. They both fell into the seats. Three other officers, moving toward the scuffle, grabbed Oswald from the front, rear, and side. As MacDonald fell into the seat with his left hand on the gun, he felt something graze across his hand and heard what sounded like the snap of the hammer. MacDonald felt the pistol scratch his cheek as he wrenched it away from Oswald. Detective Bob K. Carroll, who was standing beside MacDonald, seized the gun from him. The other officers who helped subdue Oswald corroborated MacDonald in his testimony, except that they did not hear Oswald say, quote, it's all over now, end quote. Deputy Sheriff Eddie R. Walthers recalled such a remark, but he did not reach the scene of the struggle until Oswald had been knocked to the floor by MacDonald and the others. Some of the officers saw Oswald strike MacDonald with his fist. Most of them heard a click, which they assumed to be a click of the hammer of the revolver. Testimony of a firearms expert before the commission established that the hammer of the revolver never touched the shell in the chamber. Although the witnesses did not hear the sound of a misfire, they might have heard a snapping noise resulting from the police officer grabbing the cylinder of the revolver and pulling it away from Oswald while he was attempting to pull the trigger. Two patrons of the theater and John Brewer testified regarding the arrest of Oswald, as did the various police officers who participated in the fight. George Jefferson Applin, Jr. confirmed that Oswald fought with four or five officers before he was handcuffed. He added that one officer grabbed the muzzle of a shotgun, drew back, and hit Oswald with the butt end of the gun in the back. No other theater patron or officer has testified that Oswald was hit by a gun. Nor did Oswald ever complain that he was hit with a gun or injured in the back. Deputy Sheriff Walthers brought a shotgun into the theater, but laid it on some seats before helping subdue Oswald. Officer Ray Hawkins said that there was no one near Oswald who had a shotgun, and he saw no one strike Oswald in the back with a rifle butt or the butt of a gun. John Gibson, another patron in the theater, saw an officer grab Oswald, and he claims that he heard the click of a gun misfiring. He saw no shotgun in the possession of any policeman near Oswald. Johnny Brewer testified he saw Oswald pull the revolver and the officers struggle with him to take it away, but that once he was subdued, no officer struck him. He further stated 
that while fists were flying, he heard one of the officers say, quote, Kill the president, will you? End quote. It is unlikely that any of the police officers referred to Oswald as a suspect in the assassination. While the police radio had noted the similarity in description of the two suspects, the arresting officers were pursuing Oswald for the murder of Tippett. As Oswald, handcuffed, was led from the theater, he was, according to MacDonald, quote, cursing a little bit and hollering police brutality, end quote. At 1.51 p.m., Police Car 2 reported by radio that it was on the way to headquarters with the suspect. Captain Fritz returned to police headquarters from the Texas School Book Depository at 2.15 after a brief stop at the sheriff's office. When he entered the Homicide and Robbery Bureau office, he saw two detectives standing there with Sergeant Gerald L. Hill, who had driven from the theater with Oswald. Hill testified that Fritz told the detective to get a search warrant, go to an address on 5th Street in Irving, and pick up a man named Lee Oswald. When Hill asked why Oswald was wanted, Fritz replied, quote, Well, he was employed down at the book depository, and he had not been present for a roll call of the employees, end quote. Hill said, quote, Captain, we will save you a trip. There he sits, end quote. Statements of Oswald During Detention Oswald was questioned intermittently for approximately 12 hours between 2.30 p.m. on November 22 and 11 a.m. on November 24. Throughout this interrogation, he denied that he had anything to do either with the assassination of President Kennedy or the murder of Patrolman Tippett. Captain Fritz of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau did most of the questioning, but he kept no notes, and there were no stenographic or tape recordings. Representatives of other law enforcement agencies were also present, including the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service. They occasionally participated in the questioning. The reports prepared by those present at these interviews are set forth in Appendix 11. A full discussion of Oswald's detention and interrogation is presented in Chapter 5 of this report. During the evening of November 22, the Dallas Police Department performed paraffin tests on Oswald's hands and right cheek in an apparent effort to determine, by means of a scientific test, whether Oswald had recently fired a weapon. The results were positive for the hands and negative for the right cheek. Expert testimony before the Commission was to the effect that the paraffin test was unreliable in determining whether or not a person has fired a rifle or revolver. The Commission has, therefore, placed no reliance on the paraffin tests administered by the Dallas police. Oswald provided little information during his questioning. Frequently, however, he was confronted with evidence which he could not explain, and he resorted to statements which are known to be lies. While Oswald's untrue statements during interrogation were not considered items of positive proof by the Commission, they had probative value in deciding the weight to be given to his denials that he assassinated President Kennedy and killed Patrolman Tippett. Since independent evidence revealed that Oswald repeatedly and blatantly lied to the police, the Commission gave little weight 
to his denials of guilt. Denial of Rifle Ownership From the outset, Oswald denied owning a rifle. On November 23, Fritz confronted Oswald with the evidence that he had purchased a rifle under the fictitious name of Hiddell. Oswald said that this was not true. Oswald denied that he had a rifle wrapped up in a blanket in the Payne garage. Oswald also denied owning a rifle and said that since leaving the Marine Corps, he had fired only a small bore twenty-two rifle. On the afternoon of November 23, officers H. M. Moore, R. S. Stovall, and G. F. Rose obtained a search warrant and examined Oswald's effects in the Payne garage. They discovered two photographs, each showing Oswald with a rifle and a pistol. These photographs were shown to Oswald on the evening of November 23, and again on the morning of the 24th. According to Fritz, Oswald sneered, saying that they were fake photographs, that he had been photographed a number of times the day before by the police, that they had superimposed upon the photographs a rifle and a revolver. He told Fritz a number of times that the smaller photograph was either made from the larger, or the larger photograph was made from the smaller, and that, at the proper time, he would show that the pictures were fakes. Fritz told him that the two small photographs were found in the Payne garage. At that point, Oswald refused to answer any further questions. As previously indicated, Marina Oswald testified that she took the two pictures with her husband's Imperial Reflex camera when they lived on Neely Street. Her testimony was fully supported by a photography expert who testified that, in his opinion, the pictures were not composites. The Revolver At the first interrogation, Oswald claimed that his only crime was carrying a gun and resisting arrest. When Captain Fritz asked him why he carried the revolver, he answered, quote, Well, you know about a pistol. I just carried it, end quote. He falsely alleged that he bought the revolver in Fort Worth, when in fact he purchased it from a mail-order house in Los Angeles. The aliases Hiddell and O. H. Lee The arresting officers found a forged Selective Service card with a picture of Oswald and the name Alec J. Hiddell in Oswald's billfold. On November 22 and 23, Oswald refused to tell Fritz why this card was in his possession or to answer any questions concerning the card. On Sunday morning, November 24, Oswald denied that he knew A.J. Hiddell. Captain Fritz produced the selective service card bearing the name Alec J. Hiddell. Oswald became angry and said, quote, now, I've told you all I'm going to tell you about that card in my billfolds. You have the card yourself, and you know as much about it as I do. End quote. At the last interrogation in November, Oswald admitted to Postal Inspector Holmes that he had rented Post Office Box 2915, Dallas, but denied that he had received a package in this box addressed to Hedell. He also denied that he had received the rifle through this box. Holmes reminded Oswald that A.J. Hedell 
was listed on Post Office Box 30061 New Orleans as one entitled to receive mail. Oswald replied, quote, I don't know anything about that, end quote. When asked why he lived at his rooming house under the name O.H. Lee, Oswald responded that the landlady simply made a mistake because he told her that his name was Lee, meaning his first name. An examination of the rooming house register revealed that Oswald actually signed the name O.H. Lee. The Curtain Rod Story in concluding that Oswald was carrying a rifle in the paper bag on the morning of November 22, 1963, the commission found that Oswald lied when he told Frazier that he was returning to Irving to obtain curtain rods. When asked about the curtain rod story, Oswald lied again. He denied that he had ever told Frazier that he wanted a ride to Irving to get curtain rods for an apartment. He explained that a party for the Payne children had been planned for the weekend, and he preferred not to be in the Payne house at that time. Therefore, he made his weekly visit on Thursday night. Actually, the party for one of the Payne's children was the preceding weekend, when Marina Oswald suggested that Oswald remain in Dallas. When told that Fraser and Mrs. Randall had seen him carrying a long, heavy package, Oswald replied, quote, Well, they was mistaken. That must have been some other time he picked me up, end quote. In one interview, he told Fritz that the only sack he carried to work that day was a lunch sack which he kept on his lap during the ride from Irving to Dallas. Fraser testified before the commission that Oswald carried no lunch sack that day. Actions During and After Shooting During the first interrogation on November 22, Fritz asked Oswald to account for himself at the time the president was shot. Oswald told him that he ate lunch in the first floor lunchroom and then went to the second floor for a Coke, which he brought downstairs. He acknowledged the encounter with the police officer on the second floor. Oswald told Fritz that after lunch, he went outside, talked with foreman Bill Shelley for five or ten minutes, and then left for home. He said that he left work because Bill Shelley said that there would be no more work done that day in the building. Shelley denied seeing Oswald after 12 noon or at any time after the shooting. The next day, Oswald added to his story. He stated that at the time the president was shot, he was having lunch with Junior, but he did not give Junior's last name. The only employee at the depository building named Junior was James Jarman, Jr. Jarman testified that he ate his lunch on the first floor around five minutes to twelve and that he neither ate lunch with nor saw Oswald. Jarman did talk to Oswald that morning. Quote, he asked me, what were the people gathering around on the corner for? And I told him that the president was supposed to pass that morning and he asked me did I know which way he was coming and I told him Yes, he probably come down Maine and turn on Houston and then back again on Elm. Then he said, oh, I see, and that was all. End quote. Prior attempt to kill. The attempt on the life of Major General Edwin A. Walker. 
At approximately 9 p.m. on April 10, 1963, in Dallas, Texas, Major General Edwin A. Walker, an active and controversial figure on the American political scene since his resignation from the U.S. Army in 1961, narrowly escaped death when a rifle bullet fired from outside his home passed near his head as he was seated at his desk. There were no eyewitnesses, although a 14-year-old boy in a neighboring house claimed that immediately after the shooting, he saw two men in separate cars drive out of a church parking lot adjacent to Walker's home. A friend of Walker's testified that two nights before the shooting, he saw, quote, two men around the house peeking in windows, end quote. General Walker gave this information to the police before the shooting, but it did not help solve the crime. Although the bullet was recovered from Walker's house, in the absence of a weapon it was of little investigatory value. General Walker hired two investigators to determine whether a former employee might have been involved in the shooting. Their results were negative. Until December 3, 1963, the Walker shooting remained unsolved. The Commission evaluated the following evidence in considering whether Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shot which almost killed General Walker. 1. A note which Oswald left for his wife on the evening of the shooting. 2. Photographs found among Oswald's possessions after the assassination of President Kennedy. 3. Firearm identification of the bullet found in Walker's home. And 4. Admissions and other statements made to Marina Oswald by Oswald concerning the shooting. Note left by Oswald. On December 2, 1963, Mrs. Ruth Payne turned over to the police some of the Oswald's belongings, including a Russian volume entitled, quote, Book of Useful Advice, end quote. In this book was an undated note written in Russian. In translation, the note read as follows. 1. This is the key to the mailbox which is located in the main post office in the city on Hervé Street. This is the same street where the drug store, in which you always waited, is located. You will find the mailbox in the post office which is located four blocks from the drug store on that street. I paid for the box last month, so don't worry about it. 2. Send the information as to what has happened to me to the embassy, and include newspaper clippings should there be anything about me in the newspapers. I believe that the embassy will come quickly to your assistance on learning everything. 3. I paid the house rent on the second, so don't worry about it. 4. Recently, I also paid for water and gas. 5. The money from work will possibly be coming. The money will be sent to our post office box go to the bank and cash the check. 6. You can either throw out or give my clothing, etc., away. Do not keep these. However, I prefer that you hold on to my personal papers, military, civil, etc. 7. Certain of my documents are in the small blue valise. 8. The address book can be found on my table in the study should need same. 7. We have friends here. The Red Cross also will help you. 
Red Cross in English. 10. I left you as much money as I could, $60 on the second of the month. You and the baby can live for another two months using $10 per week. 11. If I am alive and taken prisoner, the city jail is located at the end of the bridge through which we always passed on going to the city, right in the beginning of the city after crossing the bridge. James C. Cadigan, FBI handwriting expert, testified that this note was written by Lee Harvey Oswald. Prior to the Walker shooting on April 10, Oswald had been attending typing classes on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday evenings. He had quit these classes at least a week before the shooting, which occurred on a Wednesday night. According to Marina Oswald's testimony, on the night of the Walker shooting, her husband left their apartment on Neely Street shortly after dinner. She thought he was attending a class or was on his own business. When he failed to return by 10 or 10.30 p.m., Marina Oswald went to his room and discovered the note. She testified, quote, When he came back, I asked him what had happened. He was very pale. I don't remember the exact time, but it was very late, and he told me not to ask him any questions. He only told me he had shot at General Walker, end quote. Oswald told his wife that he did not know whether he had hit Walker. According to Marina Oswald, when he learned on the radio and in the newspapers the next day that he had missed, he said that he, quote, was very sorry that he had not hit him, end quote. Marina Oswald's testimony was fully supported by the note itself, which appeared to be the work of a man expecting to be killed or imprisoned or to disappear. The last paragraph directed her to the jail, and the other paragraphs instructed her on the disposal of Oswald's personal effects and the management of her affairs if he should not return. It is clear that the note was written while the Oswalds were living in Dallas before they moved to New Orleans in the spring of 1963. The references to house rent and payments for water and gas indicated that the note was written when they were living in a rented apartment. Therefore, it could not have been written while Marina Oswald was living with the Paines. Moreover, the reference in paragraph 3 to paying, quote, the house rent on the second, end quote, would be consistent with the period when the Oswalds were living on Neely Street, since the apartment was rented on March 3, 1963. Oswald had paid the first month's rent in advance on March 2, 1963, and the second month's rent was paid on either April 2 or April 3. The main post office, quote, on Hervé Street, end quote, refers to the post office where Oswald rented Box 2915, from October 9, 1962, to May 14, 1963. Another statement, which limits the time when it could have been written, is the reference, quote, you and the baby, end quote, which would indicate that it was probably written before the birth of Oswald's second child on October 20, 1963. Oswald had apparently mistaken the county jail for the city jail. From Neely Street, the Oswalds would have traveled downtown on the Beckley bus, across the Commerce Street viaduct, and into downtown Dallas through the triple underpass. 
either the viaduct or the underpass might have been the bridge mentioned in the last paragraph of the note. The county jail is at the corner of Houston and Main Streets, quote, right in the beginning of the city, end quote, after one travels through the underpass. Photographs. In her testimony before the commission in February 1964, Marina Oswald stated that when Oswald returned home on the night of the Walker shooting, he told her that he had been planning the attempt for two months. He showed her a notebook three days later containing photographs of General Walker's home and a map of the area where the house was located. Although Oswald destroyed the notebook, three photographs found among Oswald's possessions after the assassination were identified by Marina Oswald as photographs of General Walker's house. Two of these photographs were taken from the rear of Walker's house. The commission confirmed, by comparison with other photographs, that these were indeed photographs of the rear of Walker's house. An examination of the window at the rear of the house, the wall through which the bullet passed, and the fence behind the house, indicated that the bullet was fired from a position near the point where one of the photographs was taken. The third photograph, identified by Marina Oswald, depicts the entrance to General Walker's driveway from a back alley. Also seen in the picture is the fence on which Walker's assailant apparently rested the rifle. An examination of certain construction work appearing in the background of this photograph revealed that the picture was taken between March 8 and 12, 1963, and most probably on either March 9 or March 10. Oswald purchased the money order for the rifle on March 12. The rifle was shipped on March 20, and the shooting occurred on April 10. A photography expert with the FBI was able to determine that this picture was taken with the Imperial Reflex camera owned by Lee Harvey Oswald. A fourth photograph, showing a stretch of railroad tracks, was also identified by Marina Oswald as having been taken by her husband, presumably in connection with the Walker shooting. Investigation determined that this photograph was taken approximately seven-tenths of a mile from Walker's house. Another photograph of railroad tracks found among Oswald's possessions was not identified by his wife, but investigation revealed that it was taken from a point slightly less than half a mile from General Walker's house. Marina Oswald stated that when she asked her husband what he had done with the rifle, he replied that he had buried it in the ground or hidden it in some bushes, and that he also mentioned a railroad track in this connection. She testified that several days later, Oswald recovered his rifle and brought it back to their apartment. Firearms Identification In the room beyond the one in which General Walker was sitting on the night of the shooting, the Dallas police recovered a badly mutilated bullet, which had come to rest on a stack of paper. The Dallas City County Investigation Laboratory tried to determine the type of weapon which fired the bullet. The oral report was negative because of the battered condition of the bullet. On November 30, 1963, 
The FBI requested the bullet for ballistics examination. The Dallas Police Department forwarded it on December 2, 1963. Robert A. Frazier, an FBI ballistics identification expert, testified that he was, quote, unable to reach a conclusion, end quote, as to whether or not the bullet recovered from Walker's house had been fired from the rifle found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. He concluded that, quote, the general rifling characteristics of the rifle are of the same type as those found on the bullet, and, further, on this basis, the bullet could have been fired from the rifle on the basis of its land and groove impressions, end quote. Frazier testified further that the FBI avoids the category of probable identification. Unless the missile or cartridge case can be identified as coming from a particular weapon to the exclusion of all others, the FBI refuses to draw any conclusion as to probability. Frazier testified, however, that he found no microscopic characteristics or other evidence which would indicate that the bullet was not fired from the Manlicker Carcano rifle owned by Lee Harvey Oswald. It was a 6.5 millimeter bullet, and according to Frazier, relatively few types of rifles could produce the characteristics found on the bullet. Joseph Dean Nickel, superintendent of the Illinois Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, conducted an independent examination of this bullet and concluded, quote, that there is a fair probability, end quote, that the bullet was fired from the rifle used in the assassination of President Kennedy. In explaining the difference between his policy and that of the FBI on the matter of probable identification, Nichols said, quote, I am aware of their position. This is not, I am sure, arrived at without careful consideration. However, to say that because one does not find sufficient marks for identification that it is a negative, I think is going overboard in the other direction. And for purposes of probative value, for whatever it might be worth, in the absence of very definite negative evidence, I think it is permissible to say that in an exhibit such as 573, there is enough on it to say that it could have come, and even perhaps a little stronger, to say that it probably came from this without going so far as to say to the exclusion of all other guns. This I could not do. End quote. Although the commission recognizes that neither expert was able to state that the bullet which missed General Walker was fired from Oswald's rifle to the exclusion of all others, this testimony was considered probative when combined with the other testimony linking Oswald to the shooting. Additional corroborative evidence. The admissions made to Marina Oswald by her husband are an important element in the evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shot at General Walker. As shown above, the note and the photographs of Walker's house and of the nearby railroad tracks provide important corroboration for her account of the incident. Other details described by Marina Oswald coincide with facts developed independently of her statements. She testified that her husband had postponed his attempt to kill Walker 
until that Wednesday because he had heard that there was to be a gathering at the church next door to Walker's house on that evening. He indicated that he wanted more people in the vicinity at the time of the attempt so that his arrival and departure would not attract great attention. An official of this church told FBI agents that services are held every Wednesday at the church except during the month of August. Marina Oswald also testified that her husband had used a bus to return home. A study of the bus routes indicates that Oswald could have taken any one of several different buses to Walker's house or to a point near the railroad tracks where he may have concealed the rifle. It would have been possible for him to take different routes in approaching and leaving the scene of the shooting. Conclusion Based on 1. The contents of the note which Oswald left for his wife on April 10, 1963. 2. The photographs found among Oswald's possessions. 3. The testimony of firearms identification experts. And 4. The testimony of Marina Oswald. The Commission has concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald attempted to take the life of Major General Edwin A. Walker, resigned U.S. Army, on April 10, 1963. The finding that Lee Harvey Oswald attempted to murder a public figure in April 1963 was considered of probative value in this investigation, although the Commission's conclusion concerning the identity of the assassin was based on evidence independent of the finding that Oswald attempted to kill General Walker. End of section 18. Recording by Linda Johnson.